time to thrive. Welcome to the Thrivology Podcast with Dr. Lee Bauckham. Join us as we explore ways that you can thrive in your life, regardless of what life throws at you. It's your life. Time to live it. When you're young, it seems like everything is a learning opportunity. We watch our kids learn new skills, learn new languages, learn new sports, all kinds of things just kind of burst on the scene for them. And it seems like it's so easy. And somewhere along the way, we stop that learning. We stop the growing. Does that have to happen, though? Maybe there's something about becoming the beginner again that's important for us as adults, that's important for us as our learning process, as our self-expansion. It certainly has been part of my process. I believe in being a lifetime learner, and I often try new things for the challenge of it, not because I'm ever going to master it but because I find something important in that. Today, my guest is Tom Vanderbilt, who is a very successful and very accomplished journalist who turned his mind to being a beginner again. He took on several new skills of learning chess, of learning to surf, of learning to draw and juggle, and even making a ring, all in the process of learning to be the beginner again, to see what happens when you start beginning. And as the author of the book, Beginning, he has a lot of experience now in learning that process and still struggling and working to become a beginner, which is what our conversation is about as we talk about lifelong learning and what it takes to become a beginner. Tom, thank you so much for being here. I'm really excited to talk with you because I think I've shared uh, some of the common pieces for you, but you've collapsed down this whole process of, of learning, of beginning, uh, and you talk about that. Uh, so I would love to, for you to share a little bit about how you got to this point. Sure. And thanks for having me, Lee. Great to be here. Um, yeah, I mean, I think what happened, this was inspired, the whole process was basically inspired by my daughter. And I think I should say, first of all, that, you know, anyone who's a parent sort of automatically becomes a beginner in in my opinion, especially someone like myself who did not become a parent until their uh, let's say forties. Uh, I'm, I'm a late parent. So, you know, I spent, I had a lot of practice not being a parent. So suddenly, you know, this, this new situation is thrust upon me and all of a sudden all the research I had done ahead of time, I've talked to people, I've spent my whole life around other people with kids, all of that sort of didn't really apply <laughs> once I was thrust into it myself. So, and that's sort of the, the, the greater backstory, but my daughter gets to age four, uh, like many fathers, I'm constantly trying to teach her things and, and have her learn things and ex- explaining how important learning is. And she decides one day uh, as we're playing a game of checkers, she sees a chess board and she says, I'd like to play chess. And I said, well, that, that'd be great. Cause I've you know, heard about how great chess can be for kids, <laughs> except I don't know how to play chess. So that was a you know major problem right there and, and already a problem for my ego to have to admit to her that I didn't know how to do something. So I quickly, you know, I tried to try to learn chess and I got to a certain point, you know, because chess is one of these things that the basic rules are pretty simple, but it's obviously an immensely compl- complex game. So I thought, well, you know, rather than sort of teach her in a, you know, sort of an, in a not potentially great way, I'm going to hire a coach and just, I thought that would be interesting. And then this coach came over and I thought, you know, well, here's this game that I actually wouldn't mind knowing how to play myself. I, you know, sort of, it was always in the back of my mind. So I thought, well, let's do a little experiment here. Let's have two novices, two beginners at the same thing separated by 40 years or so, uh, you know, try to learn this thing. And I found the whole experience so 
fascinating. I wrote a you know little article about it, but then it just kind of tapped into something in my life that I, I realized, you know, it's been a long time since I really tried to learn a new skill, uh, you know, and there were things that I'd really wanted to do and had not gotten to because of a variety of reasons, mostly having to do with, you know, uh, well, we, we can go into that a little bit later, but a lot of reasons why I didn't get into it. And so I just thought, well, you know, this, this would be an interesting project for me to take on as a writer to just plunge into this world of being a beginner and try to offer some guidance and solace to people who might be like myself, who you know, were holding back for various reasons, either because they thought they already knew everything they needed to know, or they were worried about looking bad in front of other people. So I just, that was kind of the, the origin uh, of the project. And I then set out to learn a bunch of other stuff with uh, mixed degrees of success. <laughs> that wasn't the point, was it? I mean, the, the success part wasn't what you were really after. Exactly. I mean, there there are you know a lot, a lot of interesting books out there, and I, I love these books. But people who who try to tackle one thing, um, there's a book by Maria Konnikova, a New Yorker magazine writer, about becoming a, a very good poker player mm-hmm. and actually winning a lot of money. I mean, I I would love to become you know a chess grandmaster, but I I just I wasn't sure number one that I would have the time, number two the aptitude, number three that I would end up actually liking chess. And I didn't want to sort of get bogged down into one thing that was, uh, you know, too, that I wanted to then back out of, but, but you're, you're right. The point is that, you know, I, it wasn't my goal to actually reach any sort certain tangible level of, of perfection or, or mastery or anything even close to that, but really just wanted to focus on, on the process and all these things. And just to see what doing these things would, how it might enrich my life, how it might, what it might bring to my life, how it would make me feel, and maybe, you know, if, if I got a little bit good at any of these things, that would be, you know, an, 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 a pleasant side result of this whole thing. But it was really about, you know, just wanting to, to open these doors. I kind of use the metaphor of doors a lot um, in the book. And, you know, opening one door leads to a room that has three other doors that you didn't even know about because you didn't open the first door. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I didn't, don't get me wrong, I would love to be great uh, at anything, but, you know, like many people, I, you know, I have a job, I'm a, I'm a parent. There wasn't going to be this tons of surplus time to really try for mastery. So I wanted to, but I, I didn't want that to be, you know, I, just to make one last point here, I think we get into a situation where we think in, in current society that perfectionism is, is all that, you know, you have to be great at something. Otherwise, why would you bother doing it? And I, I wanted to show that, you know, there was this range of experience and, and, uh, that, that people could take away from these activities that I was doing that, that really was less dependent upon how good you were and more dependent upon a lot of other things. So, sorry, that's a long winded response there. No, it's a great response. <laughs> and, and so, but you didn't, it wasn't just chess and, and you cover in this book, talk, talk about what you did choose to, um, to learn about, I would say choose to master, but that really wasn't it, but to yeah. <laughs> choose to take on, what were the things you chose to take on? Sure. And, you know, and I, I could have gone, you know, there, there were so many tempting options and I asked some friends and they gave me some ideas, but, you know, I, I, I love, you know, learning. I, I love the idea of it at least, but I really tried to stick with a number of things that were authentically things I had wanted to do, or maybe had done as a child in the way that a lot of us do, but had sort of gotten away from and, and was trying to get back to. So I, I went with uh, singing, drawing, surfing, uh, I did juggling, which is actually very fun and, and a nice, you know, an interesting thing to do. But it, w- it was less a lifelong potential fascination and it really just an interesting way to talk about how we learn motor skills. So, but 
I do like juggling. Uh, but, and then I, I wanted to try to make something because, you know, I feel like I'm one of these people, a writer, I work with computers a lot. I just didn't, wasn't really getting my hands on, on things that much. And I felt like that part of my life and, and brain was, was missing. So I decided to try to make a, a wedding ring um, to replace a couple that I had lost while trying to learn to surf. So, <laughs> uh, kind of a forced issue there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I thought, you know, maybe if I if I make it, I'll have even more of an attachment to it, and I'll I'll just treat it with that much more care. And my wife, it my wife sort of didn't care whether I bought it or made it. She just she would like me to have one, or she wanted me to have one, and doesn't want me to lose this one either way. Um, yeah. Which so there are some things there. I, I know you talk about uh, like um, mini skills that some people would you know take on to learn. That's not what you were looking for. You you had some parameters on how you chose these, which I, I think is kind of an interesting because it became an experiment, which is part of what I like about this. So what are the parameters that you use to to choose those topics? Yeah, so I, so I tried to write off you know these what are called. There's a great phrase I like called micro mastery. This mm-hmm. guy Robert Twiggers wrote this book about micro mastery, and, and that's the kind of stuff we do a lot of already in our lives, you know, these would be sort of skills that you could pick up in a day or two, maybe it's slightly longer, but, you know, learning to drive a stick shift in a car, if any, you know, for those people that still do that, um, you know, or or just one of those things you go onto YouTube for, uh, you know, what's the best way to chop an onion? Is there some great technique? You know, like I think all of us are always doing those things and and that's a great way to sample the learning process and, and scale up the learning curve really quickly, achieve mastery much more quickly. But th- that's sort of those are sort of over and done with a little bit faster. So I wanted these sort of broad skills that you know were almost like almost like a college curriculum that covered a certain range of of artistic and and physical and you know sort of the making component and that you know were things I could do close to my home. I did travel a little bit for some of the project, but these were all things I I could learn with, close to my home and that were not not sort of profoundly expensive or sort of exorbitant, you know, like kind of learning, I don't know, learning to fly a commercial air pl- aircraft or, or something like that, which, you know, as interesting as that would be. So, uh, and then things that, as you hinted in the beginning, that were sort of deep, deep skills that I feel like these are skills you never completely master. There's always something else you could do. You know, I, you talk to, you know, singers who are in their 50s or 60s, I mean, they're still trying to get better. They still do warm-ups and drills. Um, so, I, uh, you know, chess, you can become a, a grandmaster, but then your rating can go higher than that. So, you know, uh, things that I wasn't going to learn them in a week, and then that that was it. Um, and I, 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 t- I tend to think of the whole thing as a, sort of a series of gardens that I've planted. And it's interesting, the word neophyte, which, you know, sort of a synonymous with novice, uh, actually in, in Greek, someone told me is, uh, means newly planted. Hmm. So I thought, you know, I was, I was like a neophyte and I, I had started all these little gardens and I would go back to them and, and tend them once in a while with, with practice and, and things like that. And some of them were doing better than others and <laughs> some were on the verge of dying probably. But, um, but yeah, it kind of gave me this, you know, I tried to think of them as, oh, now I'll return to this little garden. And it was a way to sort of organize it in, in my mind as well. Yeah. So, you know, as a child, I remember I had, uh, I was a serial hobbyist, you know, I would, I would go in something. And uh, one of the things that my parents gifted me with is that they, whatever it was, that interest was, they were like, you know, go explore it. And so I would go very deep. And and I remember the, I never got to mastery of those things, but I would get pretty good at something. And then something else would catch my 
attention and, and I would move into that. And so I, th- I take curiosity as a, um, one of the important skills that we seem to dull as we get older. And, and so one of the things you talked about is the difference between a child learning and uh, as an adult, what, with that, there's some barriers that are there. And some of those are based on, you know, how the brain learns, but there are some that we self-impose. What, what do you see as the self-imposed pieces? Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, number one, we, we give children this sort of free reign. I mean, hope, hopefully we do. This is, you know, sort of something that's almost under attack as well. The idea that children should just be able to try what they want and not to have some kind of goal or, or excellence quotient put on that thing. I mean, obviously there's been some, some pressure going on in that area with athletics and, and even something like chess. Um, I, I, I've seen some very unhappy chess children out there and some very sort of demanding parents. I'm not really sure that's the best uh, approach. Um, but, you know, generally children have this low pressure environment surrounded by a lot of incredibly supportive people who give them a lot of positive feedback. Uh, you know, not many, not many, they don't throw up many negatives there. Like, you know, wow, why would you want to waste your time with rock collecting or something? You know, <laughs> how is that going to help your, your job? And we don't tend, we don't tell children that not, not like young children. Um, you know, adults, you know, we don't have that. The only audience is really sort of ourselves. You know, the only person who's, who's going to push ourselves to, to learn those things. We don't, uh, it's not, it's not a matter of survival for us. I mean, kids are really, you know, you know, if you think about a child learning language, I mean, that's an important thing for them to learn. It's, it's not a recreational concern. It's something that they're highly motivated uh, to learn. So yeah. And, and the other barrier of course is time. Children have loads of time to do nothing but learn adults you sort of squeeze in what you can on the side uh, so so yeah a lot of made a lot is made of the the brain differences between youth and adult which are very real but there's a whole host of these lifestyle factors that uh, you know really really weigh as well so I really try to approach this as if as if I were as if, as if I were my daughter in a sense I, I was in the same way I was encouraging her to to try rock climbing, indoor rock climbing, to try this, to try that. And just, if she had asked me, why are you having me do all these things? I'd say, because there might be something you like, or it might be, it might be fun. And, or maybe it was something I didn't do when I was a kid. And I thought, well, maybe you should have that experience. So, uh, you know, I tried to give myself that, my own, my daughter's experience to myself, which is, which is a great luxury, of course. But um, so, yeah, that's, that's kind of the, the idea, I think. Yeah. I, I found it interesting. You were, um, you know, trying to get your daughter, she interested in chess. So you're trying to get her to learn chess. And then one day you're going, well, why am I not doing this? You know, th- there's a realization that adults have somehow unplugged from that. When I was uh, 51, I decided I was going to go to jujitsu. Um, I had oh, I did okay. Taekwondo when I was a teenager and have always like been interested in, in martial arts, but you know, life. And I kept putting it off. And finally I was like, Oh, you know, if I'm going to do this, <laughs> it's probably now, not later. And so I went to, to class when I was started when I was 51. And I remember walking in going, man, everybody's young. Um, there are a few people <laughs> who are close to my age, but a lot of them had been going for a while. And so, you know, yeah. I was the rare one that was older. There are a few others, but older and, and going in. And after, after a while of being there, I was chatting with the instructor. He said, you know, one of the things I noticed is that you're pretty open to, you know, trying, trying it out to, because he said, I have a problem when a lot of people come in who are older, the block for them is that they've been suggest they've been um, su- successful somewhere else. And their struggle is how to be completely unsuccessful 
a beginner again and that that's the barrier. Um, was that, I mean, did you have times when you were going, oh my gosh, you know, what am I doing here? I'm, I'm the beginner. I, they often have a b- bad name for So, you know, did. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, I think, I think one of the hardest things about being a beginner and maybe you experience this as well, is just walking in the door. I mean, just making that, that initial call, finding that class. And then uh, for me, I had a, a voc- my very first vocal lesson was with a, a teacher and she asked me to just sing a little sample of something so she'd get an idea of where my voice was. And this, this for me was probably you know, one of the hardest things I've had to do in my adult life uh, <laughs> to sing to a stranger. I mean, you, who, who does that? Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, Karaoke and, bar after some drinks, I think is the place. Well, where yeah, I mean, <laughs> and I don't even do that. So yeah, I mean, so it, it kind of, you know, shows you where I was coming from, but um but yeah, you know, it's interesting what you say about a class because I imagine, you now I'm curious about you. Did you have to, you had had the Taekwondo experience, but I imagine you had to go back to the first belt. If it's a belt system in jujitsu, you have to oh, start. Over. I was further back. I mean, yeah. So Taekwondo oh, yeah. is all about kicks and hits and, and yeah. jujitsu, you don't kick and you don't hit. And um, so, yeah, there was like almost zero transfer. I knew fight stance. Turns out that they reversed the fight stance. I mean, I knew uh, some things, but that almost got in my way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I wasn't a hit at all, except for I knew how to tie my belt on my uniform. That was about it. <laughs> Well, and if I can interject, you raised two really interesting points about about learning motor skills right there. I mean, number one is that unfortunately, you know, skills don't transfer. You know, from from the research I've seen, skills don't really transfer as well as we think they might. Um, in fact, there's very little transfer. Uh, you know, you have these sort of gifted athletes like Michael Jordan that can. Of course, Michael Jordan played a bit of baseball, so he right. went back yeah. to baseball, and he. You know, there's just dunking doesn't really you know work when you're in the batter's box, so it's not surprising that, that you struggled there. And the second thing is this idea that you said it was almost getting in the way and that this is one of the challenges for an older learner is that we have this history of, of other things. I mean, my daughter was, was so young, anything she was doing was almost, you know, the first time she'd ever done anything like that. So she had no previous muscle memory or uh, psycho- uh, psychologists call it interference, you know, mm-hmm. when an old pattern gets in the way of, of a new pattern. And, you can kind of see, you know, the, uh, there's a great little example of this in, in daily life. If you go, for example, to an airport and you're walking and there's an escalator that's out of order <laughs> and you approach it, the minute you step on that escalator, it feels like it's moving. You trip. <laughs> we, we've had this whole history of, yeah. of escalators working and your brain has already predicted that what's going to happen. So that, you know, that sort of, those things can get in the way that, that you know, it's just one other example. I rode a... Um, this guy, Destin Sandlin, who has a great YouTube channel called Smarter Every Day, but he had this funny device. It was called a backwards bicycle. And if you turned it left, it actually steered to the right. It was a little uh, hook up there. And the whole point was that, you know, I, I'm kind of a keen cyclist. So my cycling experience was actually a negative there. I, I was so used to man, you know, manipulating a normal bike that it was actually impossible for me to... I, to even go, I'm talking five or six feet, I would just fall over right away. Hmm. It took him about six months to learn how to ride this weird device. <laughs> and you sort of you know, kind of think of the old cliche, it's like riding a bike, you never forget. But if you've only known how to ride a regular bike, you know, riding this new thing. So that, that's something that adults, you know, that can be a challenge for going into a, a beginner class. Uh, but I think I think a lot of the, most of the pressure for me was just my own, my own mind, um, the presence of other people, but I, you know, 
I'm not sure how it worked in your class, but there's, there's something in psychology called the spotlight effect where we think pe other people are looking at us more than they really are. And so I, I would go to something, you know, like surfing and oh my, I would fall and I would look around like, oh my God, who saw yeah. that? And uh. no one really saw it. No one cared. I mean, there were a lot of other beginners also making mistakes. So uh, I think the, the, you know, this brings up one other point that, that kids are, why they're so effective at learning is they, they, they don't overthink things as much. They just plunge right in. They, at least up to a certain age, they don't have that self-consciousness and they learn languages by babbling, by making funny sounds, by doing all this stuff. We tend to think, you know, how is my accent weird? What are the grammatical rules here? Uh, a lot of stuff we're thinking. So uh, getting out of getting out of our own way is one of the great barriers, I think, to, to learning something, particular, particularly in middle age. So was there a struggle for you in um, being playful about it? Um, because that's the other thing I noticed. Kids are playful. You know, they're playful with sounds. When they're playing chess, I've watched my, my son did chess and they played at it. You know, they were just goofing around playing. And then you suddenly, there comes this point when suddenly it's like, got to do it right. It's work. You know, I. so did you ever struggle with, with staying in play mode with those things? That's a great point. And I, I um, trying to think of a moment, but it, it actually makes me think of something else, you know, which was my, my primary thing that I was passionate about, which was cycling, as I just mentioned. And what, what happened with cycling, though, is that sort of as you're describing, it went from this thing that initially was, was very life-changing for me, and it brought, you know, all sorts of adventure and, and fitness and all these, uh, all these sort of great things. But it was starting to feel like a job to me. I, I, was, I was racing. I had to wake up at 4 a.m. on a Friday night to make this race. I had to meet these performance benchmarks. I had to, you know, I was worried about my, my weight. I was worried about what I was eating excessively. And, and it just, a lot of it was, you know, it was, it was all passion and, and no joy. I mean, it was, I was just losing that element. So I, I, you know, in some ways I stepped back and tried to do other things. I, as you mentioned, to try to bring a spirit of playfulness to it. So it was just, doing things like not doing road racing, but riding on gravel roads or doing mountain biking, something that I didn't really have benchmarks in my mind for what being good meant and that I could just enjoy for the sake of enjoying that. And I think that was, but you're right. It was something that I had to work consciously as I was doing these things to, to not, um, to not lose that aspect. So how did you avoid benchmarking? I mean, what, so I remember I go to jujitsu with my wife's blessing because we knew it was going to take a lot of time out. And I come back and I've got the curriculum, like, you know, I've got, to, I've got to master these, you know, these moves for me to move forward. And she's like, oh my gosh, all you need is a curriculum. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm just going to work. And, and one of the things that's happened, so during COVID, you know, I can't figure out a way of being uh, that close to somebody I don't know as jujitsu requires. And so I haven't mm -hmm. been going. And so I'm, you know, thinking about going back, thinking about when that will be. And one of the things that I intend to go back is to go back to have fun doing it, you know, to, to be playful about it, which is different than I took it the first time. And I just, I, it, it strikes me that, you know, so you didn't do the road racing, you took the mountain biking, but you could easily go, okay, let's see if I can do a better time on that run. Let's, I mean, it, it suddenly clicks back in the benchmark world. Yeah. And I, and I won't say that I'm not not susceptible to that. I mean, I, I, I have a competitive spirit, like, like most of us probably. And, you know, I, I think, um, but you're right. I, you know, something like surfing, I mean, number one, it, it, it's hard to benchmark because it, <laughs> it really is such a hard, it's such a hard thing to learn. And, and it's not something you can practice that often. I mean, the, mm -hmm. the unfortunate thing about surfing is you have to, 
your, your schedule has to align with a good day at the ocean, which in the New York City areas, they sort of call it Lake Rockaway. It's, it's often just flat. You can't really go surfing. Then you get out there, and even when you're out there on a decent day, there might only be a catchable wave every 15 minutes or so. And someone described to me as, you know, trying to learn to play the guitar by strumming once every 15 minutes. It's just not the, the feed. The feedback loops are very, can be very long. So it, it, progress came very slow. So I, I felt like in some ways I was forced to, to keep the playful attitude because that, that was sort of all I had. I wasn't making this, these leaps and bounds. I was trying to, you know, make very small, I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I was, I was concerned about or interested in getting better, but I tried to keep those, um, those achievements very small. And I mean, I think what happened in cycling has not happened in surfing because, well, number one, I'm just not that good. So, but you, you see it out there. You see, I, I would meet people and they would be better than me and they'd be grumbling about, oh, it's a, it's a lousy day. It's like three foot waves, three to four foot waves. And, and for me, like, you know, that was amazing. I, I love three to four foot waves. So I think, so I, I think I've just, by by abandoning some notion that I always have to be you know getting better and looking for bigger waves, I could just really be content with the waves that were out there, and that doesn't necessarily mean giving up on growth because you can do a lot of different things with those three to four foot waves. You can experiment with different boards or try little tricks on the board, and so I, I felt like you know, I mean, having having a sport that's less prone to numerical benchmarks maybe makes that easier. And I, I guess jujitsu is—I mean, you do have a belt system, so that's a very tangible benchmarking. But there aren't—you don't have quantified things, well, right? I mean, or, so, it, unfortunately, I think you can quantify if you want to. So, you know, <laughs> I, I, I would talk with people, and speaking of the spotlight effect, you know, they're like, "Man, did you see how many times I I got tapped out?" And I'm like, "I, I wasn't." thinking of you at all. <laughs> so a lot of people though would walk away going, I, you know, I got tapped by a white belt. And so they're keeping track of, you know, things like that, how many times they got tapped out or how many times they tapped, which some ways makes it quantifiable, even though it really is a learning piece. I mean, if you talk with the people who are really good, it's like a lot of other things where if it's competitive, if you're worried about winning and losing versus learning the learning mm -hmm. process, what do I learn when, when that person got me? You know, what do I learn from that? Not, oh, yeah. I lost. And and yeah. <laughs> that that does change, I think, the approach. I can be playful and go, oh, okay, I get to reset, which is the the nice thing about jujitsu versus taekwondo. When I would lose in taekwondo, it's because somebody landed a punch or a kick. <laughs> and, right, right. <laughs> in jujitsu, I go, hey, you got me. Let's start again. And there's no damage done. You know, you, you keep yeah. going. So that did change a bit of that. Um, but it just occurs to me that some some ways you can make it quantifiable if you somehow don't hold on to some playful side that this is something you were doing because you enjoyed it. And mm -hmm, surfing, mm -hmm. I would say, yeah, that's probably much easier once you are up on the board to enjoy it <laughs> than yeah, yeah. You know, some other things. But so, I mean, sometimes that, that spirit from, you know, that sort of that raging competitive spirit would actually backfire on me. There was a, a case where I was trying to do open water ocean swimming and mm -hmm. I'm, I'm sort of a very mediocre swimmer, as I talk about in the book. I was sort of taught in a in a, a very fairly common method that really wasn't that useful for trying to swim at any length. Um, and again, I wasn't doing this for competitive reasons, for doing a triathlon or anything. I just wanted, to, I thought it would be a fun thing to swim in the ocean, sort of like going going on a long hike, but just swimming. And I, so I was out on a on a trip, and there were a lot of uh, older. Uh, swimmers on this trip and particularly older women swimmers, uh, one of whom I should add 
was a lifelong smoker who had only recently just quit and had not learned to had only learned to swim fairly recently. <laughs> and she was basically crushing me in the water. And you know, my response was to just try harder and and mm. you know, I, like I, I've I've got fitness, and so I was thrashing in the water, <laughs> using this incredibly inefficient you know style that the coach later reviewed on video for me. And, and I you know I was it was a self defeating thing going on there. Where I thought I could just muscle my way through. Uh, the water and and catch this person, but no, it was all about taking a step back, really, and, and really, you know, almost engaging in sort of a more zen state of, of sort of calmness and and thinking and you know intentionality and thinking through what I was doing. That you know, energy output and and muscles had less to do with it than just you know, sort of uh, letting go a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. So that that was just, sometimes I, I think focusing on the wrong goals can actually, uh, or, or using the wrong tools can, can really come back to haunt you when, when you're trying to perform and, and to learn. Yeah. And that, that just occurs to me that there is this, I mean, so you knew how to swim, right? So the doing that was less of a learning experience that you were doing as much as it was a challenge, which probably changes how you frame it in your mind too. Um, yeah. Although I, I didn't, know how to swim, but I really felt like I was relearning how to swim because mm. the, the, some of the techniques were, were, were so, maybe it was a tweaking, but I, I did feel like it changed my relationship to the act of, of swimming. And that's a funny thing where you can think you're doing something right your whole life. And yet it, I never enjoyed it that much because I always felt like I was struggling and lo and behold, because I was probably doing it, in, you know, in a poor manner. So that this is, you know, there is a, obviously a benefit to getting better at something, whether you're trying to be competitive or not. It's just that it can bring you more more pleasure. I, th- I think, it, you know, it would be wrong to think that no one wants to improve or wants a little bit of taste of mastery. Uh, but, and that was something I had to struggle with in my book, even in terms of, let's say, well, I wanted to join a choir. I, I After I was doing singing for a while in private, I, I didn't want a choir that was too good, but I also didn't necessarily want a choir that was too bad because number one, it might not sound that great. And number two, I wanted to actually get a little bit better. So I thought if I had some good singers around me, I, I would, you know, possibly learn from that. So I, that, that's just my own inner demon that I had to grapple with is that I, I, you know, I still, even when I'm having fun, I still want to be sort of good or get, get sort of good, I should say. But isn't that kind of the the sweet spot? I mean, it's so, um, you know, my kids were in the sports leagues where they didn't keep score, you know, <laughs> and everybody knew exactly what the score was. <laughs> so there's, there's something about us that wants that, wants to have some measurement. And, and so I, I guess the real question, I mean, because let's say uh, chess, you know, if all you're doing is goofing off and you're, you know, you, you don't really want to get better, it's not going to be much fun to go to the marshal and do a tournament like you did mm-hmm. and, and things like mm-hmm. that. That's not going to go very far. Um, and then there's the other side where you can completely stomp any enjoyment out of it by, you know, focusing only on what's the next thing I got to learn. What's the, the, the mastering of that. So it sounds like in some ways you're, you're talking like there's a sweet spot in the learning process of working towards improvement without allowing that to be the, the, um, the master of the process. Yeah, I think you're right. And then, of course, what also happens is that you encounter a series of, of plateaus as you're going along with learning, and this happens quite uh, commonly. So, you know, some of these plateaus are very are very short hiccups in your learning process, and it's just a, the next day you're, you're back to where you, you were or getting better. But some of these are more much more profound. And I think I've heard chess players talk about 
you know, getting up to about 2100 rating is, is just one of the most severe, because beyond that, it's sort of grandmaster territory. This is like the final ascent before, before the peak. But um, some of these plateaus, as you get better, become more challenging to work through. It require larger investments of time, larger commitment, maybe different learning strategies, because what was working you know, with your earlier stuff, it's going to take some new way of thinking about it to get you past that plateau. So sometimes there's, there's a, maybe a natural point at which you want to sort of maybe not stop, but you don't want to pursue it quite as much or try quite as hard. And, and like you say, a sweet spot where you can sort of enjoy it for what it is. And you know, a lot of people view that as sort of a, a failure, I suppose. But um, I mean, there's only, <laughs> there's only so many things in life we could be good at, I think, you know, very authentically good at. So I think we need to come up with some other way for understanding, you know, what, what this is where, and I'm sure everyone has their own you know response to that, but yeah, so, I'm still trying to fine tune mine. <laughs> well, but the, that is, I mean, that is the point of the lifetime learning part. I mean, if you, if you get it down, then it, first of all, it's probably an illusion. And second, what, what's the point of, of going on, right? So I, mean, I think you're, you're talking about the lifelong learning approach. And, and part of that, um, as you talk about it, is the beginner mind. Talk some about what that means and, and how you um, embrace that. Um, I mean, you're, you've, you're a journalist, so you're used to acquiring a knowledge base, acquiring some information versus what do you do to keep carrying on with that? You know, I mean, you, yeah. it, so talk a little bit about the beginner mindset. Yeah, uh, beginner's mind is this concept from Zen Buddhism, which I'm not really, I don't actually know that much about, but it is a concept I was, I was very curious about and you sort of it was this idea of getting back to this original state that we had as, as children, really, where the habits of, of the expert had yet to take hold. And there was, it was, it's ruled by sort of a sense of openness that an exploration and, and sort of, and, you know, the, the notion of a beginning is so, you know, filled with infinite promise. We don't really know what's going to happen at the beginning. You know, you, you open a book or start watching a movie, you don't know where that's going to go. And in some sense, starting any of these things I was trying to learn, it was the same thing. I wasn't sure where they were going to go. So uh, as a journalist, you know, I, I try to keep a sense of beginner's mind because, I mean, number one, I just am often working in realms. I would say 95% of what I do is something that's new to me. And so I sort of have to come in with a real sense, I think, of, of just intellectual humility. Like, I don't know anything about this field. I'm going to try to talk to the people who do. And, you know, I, I find that very refreshing. And, and, you know, sort of just starting with a blank slate a little bit and trying to, you know, I, I think I'm a kind of quick study. I try to, you know, do a lot of research right away. But um, so I think, it, you know, it's, but how can you, how can you get to that state when you're in, when you're an adult or, or middle age? And I, I do think that just learning a new skill almost by default, almost by definition, you know, puts you into a sense of beginner's mind because you're just, you know, you're faced with this entirely new set of, you know, take sailing, for example, if, if you've never gone sailing, I, I took a, a couple sailing lessons and I mean, number one, just the terminology of sailing. I mean, it, it, I, I could, I could spend a month just trying to learn every term that, that's, that exists on a sailboat. Then there's the actual, you know, ways of, of, of manipulating the sails, then there's taking care of the boat, then there's the navigational process, then there's reading the weather. And all of these things were, I, I felt like I took a, a we, we went out in a New York Harbor, actually, and I'd 
had never seen number one, the city from that viewpoint. And I had never been on a sailboat in New York city. And I, I just felt like this place I had lived for three decades was, I was suddenly seeing it from an entirely new perspective uh, and a real state of, of beginner's mind and, and seeing all sorts of things that way, you know, the river, um, my own body as I, as I tried to hoist a jib or whatever, I was like straining because I didn't have that, that muscle for that. Um, so yeah, I think, I think beginner's mind is, is, again, it's a way of, of countering this notion of, of restriction and, and staleness that, that an expert can sometimes be, be prone to and getting back to some original state of, of having just an openness that, that becomes, you know, we, by, by nature, I think we want to try to close that down because it, it seems inefficient or, or threatening or not constructive in our, our careers as we, as we get older. So I, I see the beginner mind as something, I mean, if I walked into jujitsu going, oh, I've got this, or if you walked into singing class or surf lesson or anything else, oh, I've got this. I mean, you, you chess, you know, <laughs> I've got this, it's not going to last long. And so I, you know, it's easy to go, okay, I shouldn't know this. There's no reason for me to know how to play chess, to surf, to sing, to, you know, all those pieces to make a, a ring at. There's no reason I should know that. I haven't ever done it. But how do you, how did you hang on to that longer? Uh, or, or did you find that that was a, um, a struggle to hang on to the beginner mindset beyond the beginning? Um, well, it's, it's a funny thing. I mean, it's in some ways, it was it was forced upon me to to hold on to that because uh, often with with skill learning i think something like surfing when i thought i had achieved a certain level of competence i was then brought to a new let's say a new surf break in another country which had a whole different set of of uh, of wave conditions i was i was on an unfamiliar board the instructors weren't the ones i was used to and i i went into that I at first told them, well, I don't really need a coach. I'll just go out by myself. Just, just let me use the board. And they said, no, no, we should go out. We'll, we'll show you the wave. And of course, over the next hour, I proceeded to catch zero waves. So here, here, it was as if I was back at square one learning all over again. And I really was trying to explain to the guys, no, I, I have surfed. I'm not, I'm not like that. I'm not like that person over there who clearly has never surfed. Uh, who hasn't caught a wave in the last hour. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, so sometimes uh, skill learning can, can kind of like snap back upon you and you're forced uh, into beginner's mind. But I mean, I guess there's other, you know, other ways that quite naturally, it quite naturally plays out. Um, I mean, I mentioned before this concept of, of doors. I mean, I started to learn, to draw and and of course there were there's still a lot I have to learn there, but just being in, a, in an art institution, you're walking down the hallway, and then you see that you peek your head in the door and there's a sculpture class going on or a painting class, and, and then suddenly you, you get that sort of itch at the, at the back you know the back of your head there like oh um, I, I could I'd like to give that a try and then then I, then I, everything nothing I knew from drawing would necessarily carry over. I mean maybe a little bit into painting but not really sculpture and you could sort of reassert that that beginner's mind. So I think yeah, I guess you within skills there are ways to 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 reemphasize it or or just switching to a variant of that skill or just changing something. I, I think there's a, a little metaphor in the game of chess that some grandmasters advise uh, if you're sort of stuck in a position to, to sort of close your eyes mm. and then open them and you can sort of revisualize the board f- uh, freshly. It's, I mean, it's a very simple thing, but it's, it's a, a metaphor as well. I think just, just kind of wiping the slate clean um, for a minute. 
Yeah, I remember we had one class um, when I was at that point blue belt. So I progressed, you know, and feeling pretty good about that. And the instructor said, okay, <clears throat> one hand goes in your belt. <laughs> you, you, you now have one hand. So what do you do? And uh, immediately I went, oh, not so good. You know, I've got a, it, sh- it showed all the weakness places, but it also took me back to, okay, why should I know how to do this with one hand? And that was one of my reminders that every time I walked in, um, why should I, you know, know something until I have worked on it some? Um, Yeah. yeah. It always took me back. And it raises another thing, which is that, uh, you know, the minute you begin to feel comfortable and very competent is really the moment you stop learning. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, I mean, to be learning something, it has to sort of hurt. It has to hurt your brain, hurt your body a little bit. And in, in, in juggling, I would sort of get to a point where I could do three or four balls in a certain pattern and then do a hundred times in a row. And I felt great. The teacher's like, well, okay, so now start with your right hand instead of your left hand. I, I'm, I'm left-handed. So the dominant side is easier. And then suddenly it, it was, yeah, the progress was wiped out and I was struggling and it hurt and I was annoyed. And, you know, it's just, so, it, you know, if learning is, is your goal, that's part of this, that you have to embrace the, the struggle, that it's not going to come easy. It, it eventually might come easy, but that should almost be a, a warning sign as much as a sort of trophy that you're hoisting that, you know, and yeah, t- maybe time to, to try something else or, which, which I think, because I think that has its own, you know, all these benefits uh, to keep re-energizing that process and re-energizing your brain. And I was just talking to a researcher who, who does work with, with older people. And one of the problems that happens is that they're so daunted by, by some something like a piece of technology or a certain act that they have to do, or even an even a information stream that they don't feel comfortable with that. They'll just, they'll just avoid it. So rather than try to learn, you know, how to, to the iPhone or, or you know, an example like that, they'll, they'll just avoid it. So that that's sort of a vicious cycle there where, you know, you're, you're cutting yourself off from that potential learning and then you're not, you know, you're giving up on the, on that, those benefits to your brain. And that can, you know, essentially hasten the aging pro- process. You, you know, you've, you've stopped learning, you've stopped growing and that that's a recipe for, cognitive disaster basically is what is what this researcher was telling me but it's that that sort of fear of the unknown that keeps people from wanting to learn new things but you know eventually it kind of comes back to to haunt you i think so that fear um and that's it's kind of the fear of being the beginner again it seems to me that being uh, uncomfortable and um you talked about being beat by an eight-year-old at the first tournament, you know, I mean, you've got to be able to face the discomfort of that and that that wasn't about it being an eight-year-old, but your opponent beat you basically if you boil it down, but that, that yeah. can be <laughs> a, a tough part of the process. Yeah. And for the record, I did also beat some eight-year-olds, but then I sort of felt bad. <laughs> I sort of felt bad about that too. So, you yeah. know, you're sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't. But um, yeah, I mean, for, sometimes this whole process, you know, reminded me of, of going camping or something where, you know, you, you go out to some amazing place, but, you know, it, it's it's cold, you're sleeping in this uncomfortable environment and, and you sort of, in your back of your mind, you, you both can't wait to get back to your nice warm bed, but that you're also really enjoying it. You're having these transcendent moments. So, you know, I think that beginner's mind concept, they talk about, you know, it, almost as a pilgrimage where you know, we, we, it's hard to leave the comfort of home, the comfort of familiarity, the comfort of what you know, and to go out on these, 
almost pilgrimages, but uh, which will involve some pain and suffering. And, and, and don't get me wrong, the, the statistics, I, I kind of briefly mentioned this in the book, the statistics about injury in various forms of activities are definitely tilted toward the novice spectrum. I mean, skiing, hang gliding, ice skating, you know, <laughs> running, uh, you know, it, people, novices get hurt a lot. Some of the most catastrophic things are, you know, happen to experts because they're, they're taking on bigger risks. But um, there, there is, there's definitely a cost that can come with this stuff, not necessarily chess, but some of the more, you know, physical things, which is something, again, that I, I should have mentioned this before about, you know, how do kids and adults learn differently? Well, kids can, can handle falls better in all sorts of ways. And uh, infants are, infants are built to fall. If we look at how the way infants learn to walk, the, 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 the statistics on how much they fall is, is really staggering. And people had trouble believing this, but you know, it's 30 times an hour up to 70 times an hour of just falling. And, and they, they take about 2,400 steps in an hour. So they're, we, we've forgotten this because we all know how to walk, but we put in a whole lot of work to learn how to walk like four years of, of five years of practice to become expert walkers or maybe even longer. Uh, but part of that was we failed a lot. <laughs> no one told us we were failing. We didn't, we don't remember failing, but failure is just such an essential part of this, uh, you know, learning experience that I think a lot of people, one, one big failure will, will get them to vacate some activity, but that that's the part of the challenge there is just to find a way back in and just, just realize that. One of the things that I have um, found helpful for me is is that treat lots of my life as an experiment, um, and and when you treat it as an experiment, um, experiments fail. That doesn't mean the experiment was a waste. You know, it, you you learn something in the failures too, and that uh, it's a it's a data point. It becomes a, a data point of of information. That's helped me to reframe that, but. I, I notice I say that because I have to choose to do that. I mean, I think that's a part of the adult mm-hmm. thing of being able to go, it's not so bad to fail. You know, I mean, it's not so bad for to lose at a chess match. What do you learn from that? What do you, if you review it, what did you learn from that? It's not so bad to, you know, to goof up a drawing. I mean, what do you waste a piece of paper and your time? Right. And so there are some places where failure ends up being um, not just, a, I mean, that is the learning process That's as learning to walk. You, you don't learn to walk unless you, you fall unless you fail. Exactly. I think the great thing about these these side pursuits is that they provide almost a safe space to go through that process in a way. You, you hear a lot about you know Silicon Valley people talking about fa- you know fail faster, fail more, uh, in, in sort of a career sense, take these big risks. You know, I think a lot of us don't have that luxury or aren't comfortable with that. I, I certainly, I, mean, I guess as a freelance sort of self-employed person, I've taken a certain amount of risk, but I, I'm not really advocating these. You know, this book is not about big mid-career changes and, and failure that way. But I, but I do think there's a, a value here in that, you know, maybe like you say, experimenting, doing this stuff in a, in a, in a more neutral sort of ground, I think it can bring this sense of resilience and, and, and just taking up the skill to begin with, it, it adds another facet to, to the self. And I think this expansion of self makes us more resilient people and the, the sense that you're not just this one thing you've got all these other things going on you're you're, you're sort of a swiss army knife of, of capabilities and there's there's been some research on this you know the idea of of something like a hobby even being uh, providing a stress buffer in in the workplace uh, because you you're working some of this stuff out on your own and i met a lot of people during during the course of my uh, 
learning who who were going through some pretty big life events. And for them, these these things were not something to learn surely for the pleasure of it, but to, to kind of take on and, and uh, something like a divorce, let's say, um, by surfing. I mean, it sounds sort of weird on the one hand, but then, you know, if, if you can sort of handle the ocean, it might sort of make everyday living just that much easier. And, and it gives you a sense of you have this other identity that you're forming that's aut- autonomous. You're not, you know, you're kind of stepping, stepping away from that previous self and not defining yourself merely by that divorce, for example. Um, yeah, and, and learning, I mean, the metaphor of surfing, uh, life throws you waves. you got to figure out whether yeah. they're going <laughs> to go over you or rot them in. And that is a different approach. So I'm wondering um, uh, what big lessons you take from all of this, what big lessons you take forward with you that will, um, that helped you grow, helped you expand. What are the lessons? Um, great thing. I mean, I think we've probably talked about some of them already, but again, just not getting too hung up on, on performance or, or, or goals. Um, but, and not, and definitely not, not writing anything off ahead of time because there are things I, took up that were, you know, sort of different than I even thought they would be. So, so I, I think, you know, there might, be, there might be things I would say, here's just a weird example from the pr- past year. In, in all my life, I've never really done um, yoga because I, I just didn't really have a, I, I guess I sort of had a, a, some sort of weird bias against it. Don't ask me why, but, um, but then, you know, pandemic comes along, disruption of everyday habit. Suddenly you can't really go to the gym. It's harder to do some other things you used to do. I, maybe I, you know, I was sitting at my computer longer. So can I, can I make myself feel better? So, you know, turn on YouTube, there's a whole universe of, of yoga instruction going on. And, and long story short, you know, I, I, I have this new respect for it. I, I wouldn't say I'm some master pr- practitioner, but it's brought that, you know, I, I had written that off for my entire life though. And here are these benefits I, I've been given both, you know, mental and, and physical that were not there for me before. So I think just, yeah, just having a, 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 the beginner's mind in the sense of really not having too much of a preconception about not wanting to, you know, that's not for me. We, we hear people say things like, you know, and, and the, just another big point, I think, is that when we say that's not for me, a lot of people will think about something like singing. And the common thing you hear from many people is, I, I just don't have a voice. I'm not a singer. Hmm. Uh, I'm tone deaf, you know, and most people who say they're tone deaf are not actually tone deaf. That's just an excuse they're using because they haven't had the opportunity to, to, to sing, to get better at singing because they probably were, did a little bit of singing when they were young and they were steered away from singing in, in the curriculum or, uh, you know, because they weren't the, the absolute best singer in the entire school. They weren't encouraged to keep doing it. Uh, and you've kind of forgotten that it, it especially, you know, hundred years ago, 200 years ago, it was really much more of just a, a communal social language that, you know, was, was an important part of all sorts of rituals. And I mean, it still is to a certain extent, but that's declining, I think. And part of the reason it's declining, even in a, in a like church settings is that people think they're not good enough to, to sing in that choir. And uh, this gets in the notion that people think it's an innate talent. And certainly some people, no matter how much practice they did would probably be better singers than, than another one. But it really is a motor skill, like everything. It's as, as much of a motor skill as surfing is. You have to put in the same amount of work. You can get good in the same way you can get good at surfing. Um, so yeah, just, I, I guess I, I got, the, the takeaway for me was that a lot of things I thought were much more sort of talent 
innate talent based were much more accessible to me than I thought. Uh, just, just, you know, again, through hard work, practice, being open-minded, listening to what the instructor said. <laughs> Which you really have highlighted very well is the growth mindset, you know, that if you're going to get better at something, it's, you, you get good by practicing something. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, I, in my own mind, I was just a yeah poster child for the growth <laughs> mindset over the course of a, a few years. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. and that, that's, that's a great, a great book and a, and a great concept. And again, again, one that I, I would hear, I mentioned it in the book, but I, a friend of mine, I was trying to take him and his son snowboarding with my daughter. I mean, he said, uh, he doesn't really like snowboarding. He, he likes to do things he's good at. Mm-hmm. And he had, he had only been snowboarding once. So, and to, to me, why the, should he be good? Is that? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I just, you're 10 years old, you're nine years old. Don't, don't cut yourself off that way. I mean, it's great. It's great to be good at something, but don't think you always have to be, or that you're not going to get better because you can. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I love your book, um, and I think people should read it because it's a, a Ray Kroc has the quote that I just love, which is "You're either green and growing or ripe and rotting." <laughs> so, yeah, it's a, uh, yours is all about how do you stay green and growing, even you know if as an adult you can try the new things. Not even as an adult, but we should as an, an adult. What's the best way for people to uh, track down more information to find out more about you, but and particularly your book? What's the best way to find that? Uh, probably just my website, which is uh, www.tomvanderbilt.com, and I keep all sorts of you know writing samples, and I don't quite update it as frequently as I should, but but there's there's enough stuff there I think to get people started. Uh, so that's a great place to find out more, and your book is available in bookstores wherever people like to buy books. So. Yes, and Kindle and audio, and I read the audio. So if you if you can't stand the sound of my voice, buy the print edition. <laughs> but but it's always nice to hear the author do it. So, uh, Tom, thank you so much for being here. I, I appreciate you've shared so much. I, I, I love what you've done, and uh, really love the book, and hope others will benefit from it too. Total pleasure. Thank you, Lee. Thank you. listening to the Thrivology podcast. Thank you for listening. If you want more information, visit us at thrivology.com or at thrivologymagazine.com. Remember that Thrivology is spelled T H R I V E O L O G Y. It's your life. Time to live it. Uh-huh.